This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with Let Him Ask God, Temptation's Path, The Implanted Word, No Partiality, and The Royal Law. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The hymn, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives, what are those gifts and how do they shape our theology of worship, the way we worship, how we worship, the places we worship, and even our concept of the time in which we worship? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Friday afternoon, February the 9th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to begin a series on Christian worship with Dr. Arthur Just. He is author of the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Then we'll spend some time with Pastor Chris Roseboro of Fighting for the Faith. It's This Week in Pop Christianity. Today, megachurch Pastor Troy Gramling on the importance of pursuing greatness. Dr. Arthur Just is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, welcome back. Great to be with you and wonderful to talk about this book. I, I'm very gratified that you invited me to do that. Many Christians believe that the earliest Christians had kind of a free-form worship with no structure, no rites, rituals, or ceremonies. Is this true? No, it's not, Todd. And it's, it's one of the great misconceptions that I think people have about how early Christians worshiped. One of the things that I think is, is so clear as you begin to see the structures of early Christian worship is that it flows out of the Jewish liturgical life. And that's one of the things that has always been so eye-opening to me as a student when I was studying the Christian liturgy and especially the early Christian liturgies. And I think it's very eye-opening for students that so much of what we do as Christians is very much what Jesus and the apostles did. And to see the structures of Jewish Christian worship reflected in our own liturgy, I think is very, very important to see. There is obviously a big difference, and that is that Jesus has come and he has suffered, died, and risen again, and that Pentecost has come. But the apostles, for example, in like Acts 2.42, when it says they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, they were using a way of worship that they knew because they were Jews, but they were beginning now to shape it in a way that reflected the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. What do we mean when we say historic liturgy? It's a word that 
not many people used until recently. I first discovered it in graduate school when I was studying the structures of the liturgy, and the professor would use again and again the language of historic liturgy or the great tradition. And what we're really talking about here is what came into existence over a period of about six or seven centuries that was based on the structures that I think Jesus lays down in the New Testament that the apostles built on. And then later on, after Constantine, when the church began to grow, and and especially when space began to grow, there was a five-structured character to the liturgy that becomes known as the historic liturgy. And some people may know it as the great tradition as well. It is a flow of word and sacrament being the two great structures, with the climax of the word service being the gospel lesson, the very words of Jesus, and the climax of the the sacramental service, the Lord's Supper part of the sacrament part of the service, being the words of institution, which are the very words of Jesus. So that the two climaxes are when Jesus speaks to us in the gospel or in the words of institution. And then there's movement into the word structure, and then there's movement into the liturgy of the the Lord's Supper. And then there's, of course, the distribution of the Lord's Supper, which is another time of movement. And so you have five structures. Two, I usually designate them as squares because there's no movement, word and sacrament. And then three circles, one before the word, one between the word and the sacrament, and one after the sacrament which are times of movement where people are singing or there's something happening and we're moving into one of the structures of the liturgy. Many Protestants think that the historical liturgy is a Roman Catholic thing. How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, I think that's a misnomer because it is the way Christians worshiped really up until this day. If you look at any denomination that uses, for lack of a better word, a traditional service like Roman Catholics, like Lutherans, like Episcopalians, even Presbyterians or Methodists, you will see some evidence of the historic liturgy. One of the most eye-opening things for me in graduate school after studying the historic liturgy is our professor encouraged us to bring in our hymnals and to apply to the hymnals that we used, you know, every Sunday in our worship, whether we be Lutherans or Roman Catholics or Methodists, to see if we actually reflected in our worship the historic liturgy. And in many ways, the cleanest representation of what we learned as the historic liturgy was found in the Lutheran hymnal, TLH. And certainly Lutheran worship, which at that time was the the book that we had, and now Lutheran book of worship that was a contemporary of Lutheran worship, and now LSB, Lutheran service book, they all reflect the very same similar thing. But the historic liturgy is found and has been found in the Christian church. You see it firmly in place by the year 600 or 650, when really in many ways the medieval church starts, you know, or the church of the Middle Ages. So 
you say that the liturgy takes us on a journey with Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the ways in which early Christians constructed their church was to put the baptismal font at the entrance to the church so that you would enter by baptism. That was the the frontier sacrament. And then you would walk down an aisle, like as if you were making a journey to a, a raised place where there's an altar, which is, I think for many of us, the new Jerusalem, so that we journey to the table where we commune with the body and blood of Christ, but we journey with Jesus by having him speak to us first in his word and hear him, the the very words that he spoke to us through the gospel and the reading of the gospel and then in the preaching. And then we come up so that we actually ascend to the, the new Jerusalem. One of the pictures that I have for students, and, and I think you, you'll find it in the book, is that there is a movement of Jesus, a journey from heaven, where Jesus comes down into the earth and then is buried in the earth, you know, after going through the cross. And then on the third day rises, and on the 40th, he goes back to heaven, which is what the Nicene Creed records. And that is, that is a journey of Jesus into the world and then out of the world. And through that descent and ascent, like C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, Miracles, you see the, the rhythm of nature, how the seed dies and then rises again. And, and I mean, this is how Jesus redeems the whole creation. What we do in the liturgy is we recapitulate that journey. We start with his birth, so to speak, and our new birth in him at baptism. And we make our way with him to Jerusalem to the night in which he was betrayed, where he took bread and he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so we're always every Sunday journeying with Jesus to the place where he is. And I think when you talk about the journey of Jesus, you're really talking about the very important theological notion of the real presence of Christ, the bodily presence of Christ, wherever his word is spoken and his sacrament is celebrated. And when he is there in the flesh for us, the person of Jesus, divine and human nature in the flesh, we are walking with him where heaven now comes to earth. And so in a sense, it's an earthly walk, but it's also a heavenly walk, which is why I called my book heaven on earth, the gifts of Christ and the divine service. So that journey is one that we're always taking with him every Sunday to the new Jerusalem. Dr. Arthur Jest is our guest. We're beginning a series with him on Christian worship. And when we return, what is a theology of worship? You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. 
You'll find cell phone cases for issues, etc. Lutheran Public Radio, the word of the Lord endures forever, and Luther's seal with the Reformation solas. Cross weh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support issues, etc. Cross weh.com slash LPR. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a series on Christian worship with Dr. Arthur Just. He is professor of New Testament Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Just, why should a man or woman consider enrolling as a student, either as a pastor or a deaconess, at Concordia Theological Seminary? Well, when you come on our campus, Todd, you can't help but see that the most prominent building, and it, it, it appears right away, is, is our chapel, Kramer Chapel. And I think one of the things our seminary has done for many, many years is that it sees the chapel as the most important place for the formation of pastors and deaconesses. It is there where Jesus Christ speaks to us, and it is there where he forms us in our worship, where we receive his gifts, and then we go into the classroom and really engage in conversation about what happens in our worship. We speak of uh, the chapel as Jerusalem and the classroom as Athens, and that there's always this conversation that goes on between the, the two of them. We also are known as a very hospitable campus, that there's a great sense of community among our people who work there, the faculty, the staff, and the students. We enjoy each other's company. We socialize together. We talk theology together. We have a lot of fun together. It's a family, and it has a family atmosphere. And the, the beautiful campus helps us to see that, that God has given us a wonderful place to study God's Word, to 
enjoy the gifts that he gives us in the chapel and to enjoy the saints that he has called to gather together to study at the beautiful campus of Fort Wayne. The students are the best part in so many ways, and we love having the opportunity to open their eyes to the great wonders of theology, both in the scriptures and the Lutheran confessions, in the history of the church, and then how to bring that to people's lives in the in the pastoral department. So it's it's been 40 years that I've been teaching at the seminary, and they've been the 40 greatest years of my life. And it's been a wonderful blessing for me, and I hope for my students. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, forming servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We tend to think about worship in terms of practice, but what is a theology of worship? The notion of a theology of worship starts with God and what God is giving to us. And that's that's a biblical way of thinking about what's happening. I mean, the whole Old Testament worship was where people would see that God was present for them and the notion that, that he was present in a holy place and his holiness brought with it incredible gifts and that the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to look forward to the greatest gift that God would give, and that is the gift of his son, who would come and shed his blood for the sins of the world, would cleanse the world of its uncleanness, it would make the world holy, and that in worship we gather together in this place where God is present and we are there to receive something. This this was, I think, one of the great things that Luther did in speaking about what happens in our worship is an act of faith that receives the gifts. And the gifts are always attached to the flesh of Jesus. So wherever Jesus is, there are his gifts. And Luther, again, he really summarized that beautifully when he said that the gifts are forgiveness, life, and salvation that where there's forgiveness, there's also life and salvation. And forgiveness is that release we have from the bondage of our sins. And and the life is the life of Christ, that our flesh and Jesus' flesh are joined together wherever he comes to us in baptism, in word, in sacrament. And that salvation is where he rescues us. He rescues us for our enemies. And of course, one of the greatest enemies we have is the devil. And that's why we come. We come to receive something. And in a sense, we do that passively, that, that we stand there and, and God gives us something to, to us. The hymn that you started our time together is from my dear colleague, Richard Resch. And it's, it's about the gifts that we receive in the divine service. But there's also the response of faith. And that response of faith is the response of love. And a theology of worship always includes the fact that not only is God giving us a gift, and it's in Christ that we get that gift, but in Christ, then we respond first in love towards God by worshiping him, by confessing our sins to him, by confessing our faith to him, singing hymns, praying to him. But the love that we have for our neighbor, and the first neighbor we have is the, the neighbor who is with us in the worship. And we do all that together. 
We love our neighbor by praying together, singing together, confessing our sins and our faith together. But there's also the neighbor who knows not Christ. And one of the greatest things we can do, and this is really where the mission of the church comes from, is that having received these gifts, we embody those gifts in the world, and we go out to the highways and byways, as it says in the parable of Jesus, to bring people into the presence of Jesus so they too could receive the gifts. So there's the neighbor who knows Christ, who's with us in our worship, and then the neighbor who knows not Christ. And we want that neighbor who knows not Christ to receive the same gifts that we receive in Christ in worship. Now, there's many other things that could be said about a theology of worship, but one of the things that I think is most important is that word that we use, the divine service, where God is serving us with his gifts, and then we respond to God in love. What is inaugurated eschatology, and what does it have to do with a theology of worship? Wow, inaugurated eschatology. That's that's one of, I think, the keys to understanding not just our worship, but understanding even the scriptures, that there's something that has happened when Christ came, that in a sense, he is the end. And when he comes and says, it is finished, the end times are already beginning. And that when we think of the end times, we oftentimes think of the judgment. But because Christ is the end, and he is here, and he has accomplished what he intended to accomplish, there is the eschaton, the last things, the things of Christ, the gospel and the sacraments that come to us by means of Christ's presence. And in a sense, what you see in inaugurated eschatology is that the end times have already begun. That's what the name inaugurated means, that we are already living in the end times because the eternal one has come. He has given up his life for us. He has risen from the dead. And he, the eternal one, continues to be present with us. So that's why early Christians had baptismal fonts that were eight sides, because the number eight was the eternal number. And when you entered the waters of holy baptism, and your flesh was joined to Jesus' flesh by the Spirit through the the Word of God, you became an eternal being. You were, in a sense, initiated into inaugurated eschatology, that the end times are now already beginning in you. Many people who are listening to this sing, this is the feast. And there's a a marvelous statement of inaugurated eschatology at the end of that hymn that we sing, for example, during the Easter season, that the lamb who was slain has begun his reign, alleluia. And that reign has begun already now, whenever we gather together in the divine service, in the liturgy of the church. Why did the 16th century reformer Martin Luther call worship Godestines, divine service? Well, I was really, in a sense, referring to that when I talked about how God is giving us his gifts. And the, the, the word Godestines, is, it's one of those words that goes both ways, that it's God giving something and then we responding back to God having received that gift. 
and Luther, I mean, he wasn't against the word worship, but if it stands alone, it speaks of only what we do, that we worship God. And God doesn't really need our worship. He wants us to worship him, but we need his gifts. We need his presence. We need his forgiveness, his life, his salvation. And I think Luther uses the word Gottesdienst, divine service, because he wants us not to begin with what we do in the worship service, but what God does, that God speaks to us in his gospel, that God feeds us his body and blood. And then we respond with alleluias, with with songs of praise, with the Sanctus, with the Agnus Dei, that we respond with the Nuctimittis, that we sing hymns, you know, that acknowledge what God has given us. So Gottesdienst is really the right biblical way of thinking about what happens in liturgy. And Luther was a genius in referring to what happens when we gather together in the liturgy as Gottesdienst. We're talking with Dr. Arthur Just. He is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, and author of the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service, beginning a series with him on Christian worship. On the other side of the break, the Latin phrase lex orandi, lex credendi. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with Let Him Ask God, Temptation's Path, The Implanted Word, No Partiality, and The Royal Law. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Are you looking for a confessional Lutheran church in southeast Oakland County, Michigan, just north of Detroit? Ascension of Christ Lutheran has been proclaiming the gospel and administering the sacraments since 1951. Ascension of Christ Lutheran is also a proud supporter of Issues Etc., Join us for the Divine Service every Sunday at 10.15 a.m. in Beverly Hills, Michigan. You can also find us on the internet at ascensionofchrist.org. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. 
pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Evangelical and Catholic. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a series on Christian worship. Dr. Arthur Just is our guest, seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. One more question about that term, goddess It really turns on its head the more common Christian conception of worship being kind of from earth to heaven rather than from heaven to earth, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, Todd. It's not about what we do first and foremost. It's about what God does and gives us. And of course, you know, when he gives us something, we we respond in thanksgiving and praise. And our, you know, response is very important. One of the, the things that was really enlightening for me is when people spoke about how God gives us these gifts through Christ, and it's obviously through his presence. But when we worship, when we respond to God because we receive these things, the first we're responding through Christ. So Christ is standing there, and he is praising the Father first and foremost, and we in him. In many ways, Gottesdienst, divine service, speaks about how our worship is completely and totally Christological. I I think that's what Jesus meant when he talked about worshiping in spirit and truth. So many people miss that. To worship in the spirit is to worship in Jesus because Jesus and the spirit can never be separated. So to worship in the spirit is always Christological worship. And, And who is the way, the truth, and the life? It's Jesus. So spirit and truth is simply saying to worship in Christ with Christ. And I, I think Gottesdienst really captures that. There's a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. What does it mean and how does it apply here? Well, it, it's, a, it's a very simple phrase. It's an old phrase. It's been used among Christians for many, many years from a lay monk and disciple of Augustine called Prosper of Aquitaine. What it means is that the law of worship, the way you worship, founds the law of believing. And all that means is, is that the way in which the faith was handed down until really the time of the Reformation was through worship when people gathered together. That's how they 
they heard and learned about God. That's how they were shaped. That was how they were formed. That's where the church's belief and confession was made. And the way in which people come to faith comes, that's the credendi part, the believing part, comes from what they do in worship. So your liturgy matters. Your hymns matter. What your hymns speak about and the preaching and the, in a sense, the the way in which the, the whole liturgy is formed, whether it follows that historic liturgy that we talked about, whether it, it actually kind of acknowledges that Christ is present there in his flesh, giving us these gifts. I mean, if you want to change the way people believe, you change the liturgy. I think that's what a lot of people did, you know, when they were trying to bring in new members. They, they, they didn't think Lutheran doctrine was something that, you know, was appealing to people. So they said, well, we got we to gotta really change that. And how do we do that? Well, we change our preaching. We change the way in which we construct our liturgy. We change our hymns. And I mean, to just put it baldly, if you just sing Baptist hymns, you know, and you preach like a Baptist, pretty soon your people will believe like a Baptist, you know? I think that's, it's sort of a, kind of a fundamental sort of just, this is the way things are. Having said that, though, as Lutherans, we always want the arrow to go the other way. In other words, what we believe, our doctrine, the Lutheran confessions, our confessions in the ecumenical creeds, that doctrine, that belief that we have, that does shape the way we worship. So that when we put together a worship, like the other day, the pastor and um, our director of, of Christian music, we sat down and we chose hymns and we chose them because we wanted them to proclaim a certain thing in connection with the lessons, because we wanted those hymns not just to you know be something for people to do, but to proclaim something or even to teach something. So th- the way in which we worship does, in a very fundamental way, shape the way we believe. And you know, if you, as I said, if you want to change the faith of your people, you change their way of worship. You described it very briefly a few minutes ago, but how would you describe the structure of the historic liturgy in detail? Well, the historic liturgy is centered in the the two places where Christ speaks to us and where we would say he comes to us in his word. And that is the liturgy of the word. And then, of course, the liturgy of the sacrament. Now, the liturgy of the word, interestingly, is really structured around the old synagogue liturgy. When people would gather together in the synagogue, they would read the Old Testament, and they would read it at length. But they always began with the most important part. They began with the Torah, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. And then, after reading that, they would pick a prophet which would interpret the Torah, the first five books of Moses for us. So there was always a sense where scripture is interpreting scripture. And then if it applied, they would pick a historical book like First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings that would shed light on the books of Moses 
and also, in a sense, on the prophet. And in between each lesson, they would they would sing a psalm that would have a theme that would come out of the readings where they could meditate or contemplate upon what they heard. Now, Christians use that structure, except they flipped it. Instead of starting with the most important, they ended with it. So they would start with an Old Testament reading, and that Old Testament reading would be a, a movement through an epistle reading to the climax of the gospel, and the, the three lessons would go together. And when they heard the very words of Jesus, they knew there that, that they had read the climax of the word of God, and that's all that was. And then in the liturgy of the sacrament, the most important things, of course, were the words of institution. But they always kind of built into it. So they would have a preface where they would have the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. And then a proper preface that would speak about the day. And then they'd sing the Sanctus and pray the Lord's Prayer. And all of this was leading to that moment where Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and then took the cup and gave us his body and blood. And then there would be a distribution of that, and the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that would be the distribution hymn. There would be psalms and hymns that would lead up to the Word of God. That would be the, the circular first structure of the liturgy. But then there'd be the liturgy of the Word, where we would all be sitting or standing there hearing God's Word. Then there would be psalms and hymns that would lead to the Lord's Supper, where the table would be set, the elements would be brought in, sometimes called the great entrance. And then there'd be a hymn like the Sanctus that would lead us to the, the words of institution, and then the Agnus Dei and other hymns that follow that, that, that where it would be distributed. So there was always movement in between these two structures of word and sacrament. And it's, it's a symphony of movement. When you see it done well, you can see how everything leads to the Holy Gospel and the preaching, which is a continuation of that climax. Everything leads to the words of institution and then the distribution of the body and blood that comes from the consecration of the bread and wine. So the, the, the historic liturgy has a, a built-in flow. If that flow is done well, you can, you can feel it, you can follow it, you can see how it moves from one to the other. And um, a liturgy done well captures that movement, that flow, and those climaxes of the gospel and the words of institution. We're talking with Dr. Arthur Just of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, beginning a series with him on Christian worship, we will talk about ritual when we come back. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. 
click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the walkout of faculty and staff from the Concordia Seminary St. Louis campus in 1974. If you've ever wondered about Seminex or the walkout and what they were all about, now's your chance to learn more. Pick up the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. You can purchase that at CPH. Visit cph.org witness or learn more at our website, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Educating a new generation of Lutherans. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Arthur Just is our guest as we get a series on Christian worship. What is ritual? That's a great question, and it's one that I think a lot of people sort of don't fully understand. One of the most enlightening courses I ever took in graduate school was a course entitled The Anthropology of Ritual Behavior. And one of the things you learn from a course like that is that all human beings are by nature ritualistic. We all have our rituals. And you can especially see this in children where they have a kind of a set pattern. And, and when they go to bed at night, for example, you sort of have to develop a, a way of moving them towards that. And, you know, reading a bedtime story, brushing your teeth. You know, we all have our own personal rituals. One of the things that people say about the liturgy is that, oh, you know, we don't want to do the liturgy because it's a dead ritual. Well, rituals are neither dead or alive. It's the people who do them who are dead or alive. And so ritual is ritual. It's a, it's a pattern. It's a way of doing things. And one of the things that we've learned about ritual is that in times of great tension or stress or when there's a kind of uncertainty, cultures have always developed a ritual to help somebody kind of deal with that sort of anxiety and stress. And one of the great moments that I think we all have in life is when we cross a boundary, you know, a simple boundary like going from outside the church into the church, you know, or when you cross the, the threshold from the hallway into a classroom. But the boundaries that, that really 
matter to us when we talk about ritual as a Christian category is rituals where we cross a boundary like baptism, where we we move from being dead and darkness and crossing through the waters of holy baptism, being joined to Christ and his flesh by the spirit and his word to become in the light of Christ, in a, in a life that never ends, or marriage where we have two people from two different families crossing a boundary of becoming one flesh, or a funeral where we move from living with our loved one to now crossing a boundary where we now are going to live a life without our loved one. Th- those boundaries, th- they're oftentimes called limits, and it's, they're called liminal moments, moments in betwixt and in between. We're not in one state or another. And Christians, as well as other people, have always kind of put a ritual there that helps people cross that boundary. So baptismal liturgies are not complex, but there's a a way of moving through the water. Or marriage, there's a way of moving from being single to married. Or a funeral, there's a way of moving from life with our loved one to the life without our loved one. In many ways, the greatest boundary that we cross every Sunday is the boundary in the divine service. And the the liminality, that in a sense, the anxiety, the stress that we have there is that, that we are standing in the presence of the Holy One of God. We're standing in the presence of Jesus, who is present for us bodily, the person of Jesus, divine in human natures. And heaven comes to earth. You talk about something that is that is liminal. And what we do in the liturgy, we talked about it as a journey, but we are, in a sense, crossing that boundary from our earthly lives into the the heavenly presence of, of Jesus, where we hear his voice and we receive his body and blood. That's why from the beginning, and this goes back into the Old Testament, the, the rituals in the temple, because they were in the presence of the Holy One, the rituals of Christians were very, very detailed and, and very patterned and structured so that we could safely pass across that boundary as we move from earth into heaven. And again, that's one of the reasons why I called my book Heaven on Earth, because this is a movement that requires us to recognize that we need structure. We need a way of of journeying. We need a plan. We need somebody to guide us. Oh, there's so much that could be said about ritual and its importance. But I think the most important thing is that rituals in a community that worships in a lively way, those rituals are made lively because of the people who do them. When you go into a church where it's, it's dull and it's boring, you know, and the rituals seem dead, it's because the people there are not engaged in what's happening. So how should our houses of worship be designed around our theology of worship? I think that, I mean, there's many ways, I suppose, in which you could say it, but the, the sacraments, the voice of Jesus and his body and blood need to be central. One of the things that is so important about hearing the word of God and hearing the preaching is that it's in a place where we can hear it. So it has to be appointed in such a way 
that the word of God can be heard and preaching is is there so that people can engage, you know, in what is being proclaimed. And remember, it's Jesus who is, is in a sense, through the pastor preaching to us. I think that that preaching is as we're gathered together as community and we're getting ready to move forward, especially if you do have a traditional shape where you have an aisle and pews, that we are moving forward to taking a journey towards the the place where we're going to actually enter into his presence by eating and drinking his body and blood. But there's also a, a wonderful way of, of structuring the church where the preaching and the altar are in the center of the church and the people are around it and everybody can see and hear and then come forward to receive the sacrament together. One of the the really delightful things about writing Heaven on Earth is that one of my colleagues at my church, John Rehoff, did a painting of it for the 175th anniversary of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he really captures sort of the structure of the altar with the people kneeling there and our pastors giving us the body and blood. But above it are the angels. There are eight of them to, to give the sense of eternity. And then at the very top, there are all these little heads. This is inaugurated eschatology where heaven comes to earth. And sometimes you might picture kind of a, a semicircular altar rail, but on the other side, there's also a circle that you cannot see. And that's where the, the angels, the archangels, and all the saints, the company of heaven, are together with us in our worship. In a sense, that's what inaugurated eschatology is about, that we don't worship alone that we worship with the saints in heaven, that wherever Jesus is, there are the saints, there are the angels, the archangels. That's, that's why we say that in our liturgy. And in a sense, uh, 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 the right way to, to kind of structure a church is so that these things are very evident and clear and palpable and visible and something that you can see and almost touch and feel because you, you can sense the presence of Christ there in his flesh. How does the liturgy reshape our view of time? Well, there's two ways in which it does. Early Christians did not have a church here as we do. The only real event that they celebrated in Jesus' life was, was Easter, the Pascha, you know, the Passover. They would oftentimes celebrate Pentecost as well, 50 days later. But Generally speaking, the way in which their way of understanding time was through Sunday. And for them, Sunday was the eighth day. God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. And then on the first day of the new creation, Sunday, he rose from the dead to bring in this new creation. And if you're counting six days for the creation, the Sabbath rest, the first day of the week is the eighth day. And so that whole sense of inaugurated eschatology, the presence of eternity, that the finite, the, 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 the people of God gathered around word and sacrament, finite in this world, are now capable of the infinite. That's another way of speaking of inaugurated eschatology. And so the rhythm of early Christian life was from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. You know, one way to illustrate that is we like to speak of Sunday as a little Easter, and that's true, because it's on the eighth day. It's the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. 
But early Christians would say that Easter was a big Sunday. Well, when you know the, the church becomes sort of the legal religion of the empire after Constantine, they begin to celebrate historical days, Christmas being one of them. And that's, that's for another time. We can talk about why Christmas is on December 25th. But Christmas and Epiphany, although Epiphany was even before Christmas, you know, and then Lent comes into play, and you begin to develop kind of a, a church year. So you're using the year now to kind of embrace the life of Christ and the history of his life. So you have Sunday, this eighth day, this eschatological day, this day of eternity, and then you have the, the year where you're marking the events of Christ's life. So, so the way we think of time is both through Sunday and through the year, and then the weekly rhythm that the year brings. Dr. Arthur Just is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary, on Luke and the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. You can purchase these resources by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, or on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dr. Jess, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be with you. When we come back, it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Pastor Chris Rosebro. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664.